0: There might not be a radio show, but that doesn't mean there's still not Spain. And Fitz, we are ready. We've got too much to get off our chest on a Monday to not still come at you. That's the joy of the podcast. She's Sarah Spain. I'm Jason Fitz. And Sarah, we've got a stacked one. Like, you know, we were ready for this podcast, and uh, we've got a great interview that's going to come up at the end of this. Everybody should check out with Matt Hart, a freelance journalist and writer who wrote a great book called Win at All Costs. It's totally awesome, and it breaks down some of the problems in the Nike. I, I say problems. That's so flippant. It breaks down the failings of Nike, and they're running uh, their program there. So that's interesting. We'll get into that. But there's breaking news that is right now dominating the cycle, and that is that Bill O'Brien, the GM, the head coach, the everything for the Houston Texans, he gone. He's the first coach fired. I'm kind of surprised he was the first one to go.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think all of us have been waiting on the Adam Gase news for quite some time, but, but uh, if you reflect back on the feelings you were having during the off season, the feelings you had when you saw that DeAndre Hopkins was being traded um, and just some of the questions around why the Texans keep pushing, pushing and getting close to that, you know, next level and never being able to get past a certain point. um, I think there was a massive spotlight on him, a massive hot seat, whatever analogy you want to use. And so, I'm not all that surprised, especially considering, like, no offense to the Jets, but there's always some offense to the Jets, right? Um, The expectations weren't great. Uh, The Texans did have expectations. And to start off as poorly as they have and for everything to be able to be put on the shoulders of one man who is the coach, who is the GM, who is the play caller— then i don't know who else you turn to when things are going as badly as they are so i'm not surprised
0: well i and let me say this like over the summer my constant joke was who does he have naked pictures of that he's been able to keep his job like right. And yeah, you got
1: to find that energy fit when yeah. you're like, I'm surprised he was the first one. I'm you surprised. Go back and find that energy.
0: Well, my, yeah, <laughs> you're right. But like, the thing for me is, is like, if they didn't fire, what did they expect coming? Like, he's wasted the talent they've had year in and year out. And while the results haven't been great, the whole reason I didn't pick the Texans to win the division is because Bill O'Brien's standing on the sideline. So, like, I, I, I guess I'm looking at it saying, what did you see through the first four weeks of the season that you didn't expect already? Like, th- this is just who he's been as a coach. So I kind of feel... I don't know,
1: though, because they've had some real success in recent years. I, I, I Listen, I, I am not a, a, a Brian Stan, and I think that they have made a grave error in giving him as much power as they did, particularly when it came to roster decisions like getting rid of your best wide receiver who was a massive percentage of your offensive abilities. That being said, Fitz... You know, loss to the Chiefs, all right. lost to the Ravens, I get it. Like, maybe should have stuck in there with the Steelers. Loss to the Vikings, that are not a good team. You're starting off 0-4. This is a team that's been consistently playoff-bound, that has an incredible quarterback, that has talent that they need to take advantage of while they have it and while they're under contract with them. And this looks like a lost season already. That's terrible. That's that's, to me, is completely different than the success this team has had in recent years, despite, perhaps, Bill
0: O'Brien. And, you know, in fairness, yes, this is a team that's made the playoffs. But it just feels like Deshaun Watson is so unbelievably good. Like, Deshaun Watson belongs in the same conversation as Patrick Mahomes. And so they haven't gotten that sort of great support for him up and down. And it's not just him. I mean, you start to look at some of the players they've had on the defensive side of the ball, like, they have been – absolute, they've been full of people that are capable of, of gracing the cover of Madden, you know, so they've got not just stars, they've got brand names that they've had around this team for the last several years, that's why I've had high expectations, and there've been very few times, I feel like, over the last couple of years that I've watched the Texans, where I've thought, man, boy, they are just playing past what they're capable of, or man, were they coached into, like, that is great coaching, like, I sit there more often than not and say, wow, they've got so many talented players, they should be better, and so that's where, I you're right, the playoffs is nothing i mean my god i'd kill for my beloved raiders to make the playoffs so but it's not
1: championships in last year the year before 2016 2015 like they've been on a roll here of late like i said they keep coming up against that same moment that they can't get past they can't win the conference they can't win the league Um, They can get those division wins and then they go into games like the ones we've seen where like they'll have a half of football where they're destroying and then they just disappear. And that to me feels like it has to be coaching when you're, when you're dropping a team and then they make adjustments and you don't respond and you blow a massive lead that's coaching. And so that to me is one of the signs that they weren't taking advantage of the talent. Like you said, that they never played up to the potential they had.
0: Yeah. And you're totally right. You know, the division championships, I think part of the reason that I haven't given those as much weight is A, the the lack of playoff success that they've had for who they should be. But then the other side of it is the South has been so just, I mean, bad at times. That division is just, uh, you know, even this year looking at it, we don't know what to expect from the Jags, but we don't expect the Jags to be great. Mm -hmm. And then there's this constant question mark about the Colts, who at one point had a quarterback and nothing else, and then they had everything but a quarterback. So trying to figure out that, you know, and then the the Titans who – are just perennially an eight and eight, nine and seven team, so it feels like that last year, right? Right. So it feels like the the Texans should have been better capable of of capitalizing on sort of the opportunity the division gave them also. So uh, he's gone. He's the first one out. What happens now? Yeah, I mean, that's a real question. And as we tape this right now, uh, John McClain, who uh, I love that covers the Texans so well, has said that the only uh, change that they know of other than this is that Romeo Cronell will be named the interim head coach, which feels like the 57th time he's been an interim head coach in his career. So, you know, I, I don't know what they do. They get an early head start. You know, they've got Deshaun Watson locked up. So I would think that it's a very appealing job. And it'll take about three seconds for the absolutely stupid Dabo's going to leave college football to coach his guy <laughs> in the NFL rumors, to which I can't say loud enough I mean, is they not happening. Started for sure. uh, oh yeah, they're no.
1: they're they're out there. They've got. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean it, it's always a risk mid season, especially a season like this where there was so little time to like get running uh, to bring someone in. Um, but it feels necessary. Yeah, and and also it it's not that the reputation should matter that much if if the result is there. It doesn't really matter if people make like, you know, Bill Belichick's the perfect example. You can say a sweatshirt makes him look like a hobo and you can make fun of his press conferences and he's just going to keep handing you W's. It's the opposite, though, when the result isn't there and your coach slash GM slash play caller has been made into sort of the the butt of every joke. And when it's become clear that a lot of the players on the team don't respect the moves he's making at that point, you really got to put up quite the product to offset all of that. And oh, and four ain't going to do it.
0: Yeah, no, you're so right about that, too, by the way. Like, you can be a non likable head coach as long as you're winning games, or you can be sort of the butt of everything as long as you're winning games. The minute that turns around, whew, it gets ugly fast. Now, it got ugly fast over the weekend, too, in the NBA with LeBron and the Lakers losing finally to the Heat, you know. And I expected this at some point. You know, one thing we've talked about is that the Heat come out with fire and they come out with aggression. And Jimmy Butler did that. Like, Jimmy Butler did exactly what I expected he would do at some points there, but they get a win that's pretty convincing, and I know that there was a moment at the end of the game that has a lot of people sort of uh, questioning, or at least scratching their head about LeBron.
1: Yeah, so I want to be completely honest. Early on in LeBron's career, because of my obsession with Michael Jordan, I didn't always like the comparisons. I was very protective of Michael being the best ever. And I didn't love some of the differences between the two of them. And I know that a lot of those differences might not have been in existence if Jordan had come years later, right? There's just a different vibe and world that LeBron came up in, both um, in terms of media coverage, 24-7 sports channels, social media, everything else. But, you know, a lot of the, like, talking in third-person stuff and taking out his teammate stuff, I, it just felt different sometimes. And I would use those, and I would look for them in order to point out to people that he was no Michael. Well, over the years, I have grown incredibly um, impressed with LeBron, not just as a talent, but as a person, as an activist, as a, a philanthropist, like all of this, like, like all the aspects of LeBron have made it difficult for me to keep trying to push some narrative that he's not that guy. He is that guy. He's amazing. He's amazing. And when he does stuff like this, instead of looking for it and kind of, like, rubbing my hands together, like, got him, I'm mad at him. I'm frustrated with him because you're so good at basketball and you're such a good person and you speak up for things that matter. And you've not been in trouble for the entirety of your life, all of which has been under the spotlight. And then you do dumb stuff like this. And, like, I posted it on my Facebook and I just said this stuff kills me because I want, you know, I like him. I want to keep liking him and it makes it so easy for people to sour on him for dumb stuff like this and ignore all the good stuff he does and that the excuses that came out fits i mean listen there's 10 seconds on the clock you need five people on the court from each team until there's zero seconds and he walks off because they're losing in a series that they're still up two games to one he kind of turns around like what oh i didn't know that that was the rule he watches it click down And then leaves, even though his teammate now has to take off his warm-ups and come out on the court. There's not enough players. It slows everything down. It's just the attitude. And it's, of course, we know not the first time he's walked off the court before a game was over, right? Mm -hmm. It's not the first time this has happened. It's not a big deal. It doesn't erase what a great player it is. It doesn't erase all the good stuff he's done. But it does give dumb people an excuse to point at him and call him a sore loser, an excuse to point at him and say he's an unprofessional or a bad guy. And that used to be something I could get behind, but I can't <laughs> anymore. And I'm mad at him because just, you know, don't undermine all the good stuff with dumb stuff like that, especially because I think it's really disrespectful to your opponents. And this, this is the NBA finals. You're not playing some podunk you that managed to squeak out a win where you could be that disappointed in yourself. They were going to get a win right it wasn't going to be a sweep by most people's account so take the L wait on the court till the clock goes off and then go start prepping for the next game
0: yeah you know the other thing through all of it is the one thing we know about lebron is that he he knows the power that his words and actions have like he understands action consequence he understands the narrative that he can control He understands that when he does things, people pay attention to it. That's part of why it's frustrating for me at times when he does something like this and then throws his hands up with like, why is this a big deal? Well, you know, the power that your voice has, you know, the over-examination from every one of your actions. And as a result, you have to sit back sometimes and realize that with the standards you're being held to, you have to act a certain way. And even when it's not easy and you know, at some point, these are the moments that he, he can't sit there and play blind or, or, or unaware dumb, yeah. to what what's going to happen here. Like, you know the power of your actions, and you know you're LeBron. So you know the way LeBron haters are going to treat this. And not even just haters, but to your point, the people in general are going to look at this. They're going to drag you for it, and rightfully so. Like, when you understand the power of your voice and you still do something like this, then you are only adding fuel to the fire Yourself. And that's what's a stunning thing for a very smart man. It's stunning to me that he still doesn't get this.
1: 800 finals games. Yeah. I think it's more like 53. But either way, like, you know, he's been here before many times. Frustration affects everybody. And listen, if you don't want people to keep doing the MJ would never game, then maybe don't give them any opportunities to think that. Right. And I'm not, I, I, listen, I'm not playing that game. It's silly. We don't really know how anything would play off if we, you know, uh, you know, redid all these scenarios with different people in different times and different teams. But it's just a bad look.
0: Yeah, it's there. like, like there's an
1: undermine all the good stuff, but it's a bad look. And, and one that I thought was worth addressing, mainly because I'm also proud of myself for having evolved and matured enough to be mad at him for making himself look bad instead of reveling in it.
0: Well, <laughs> yes. And, you know, like, I, I'm constantly, I'm the one that sits back all the time and says, you know, I don't really care about LeBron versus MJ. I think they're both spectacular. I know that doesn't make for great radio, but, like, they're both great, awesome. You know, the funny thing to me is <laughs> even you and I, like, there are times that... Even people at our level and, and, you know, my level is a fraction of what yours is and your level is a fraction of what LeBron's is, right? But you think about when you're going to Twitter, there's a time where you just stop and you're like, okay, is this worth it? Am I really, yeah. like, I got oh, to hold my- Oh, my drafts
1: box. Woo! Oh, I Especially mean, this week. <laughs> I mean, that is
0: that's real, right? So <laughs> I'm looking at it thinking if I'm aware enough and I'm not as accomplished or successful or, frankly, as business smart as LeBron is by any stretch- and I'm aware that, like, okay, no, I can't press send on that, right? You know, there's this moment of it's no different just because he's on the court. He's aware of the situation, and he's got to be aware of what the yeah. recourse will be.
1: And you understand, it's it's the highest level. They've been in the bubble forever. The frustration, the tension, the missing of the family, everything else, I get it. But after the fact, when they ask if you did it because you were frustrated you thought the game was over, just I was frustrated, and I apologize. You know, it's bad luck from me. I won't do it again. And that's it, right? Just own it and move on. Um and acknowledge that, you know, they got a lot going on in that bubble. Yeah. I can't believe I'm making excuses for LeBron. But again, bad luck, LeBron. <laughs> <laughs> I'm really proud of myself.
0: Well, you know what, I feel like we had a we had a very good, fair, reasonable conversation yeah. about it. Look at that. I can't
1: wait for my menchis to still be like, You B-I-T-C-H. Oh, God, yeah. I'm trying not to swear.
0: Mm. Well, mm. I, can you spell it? I don't know if you can
1: spell it. <laughs> I mean, i feel like. Listen, if we're you're old enough this. to spell it, you're old enough to, to hear it. And That's so probably fair. So I'm not apologizing. Um, well, I don't know when we're going to have a show this week, Fitz, because the schedule keeps changing. I know we're off tomorrow. Maybe we'll do a pod. We'll see. Um, but either way, nice to catch up with you. Uh, we'll touch on our picks. I think I'm looking pretty good. Again this week, did you look at your picks? How you looking?
0: No, I, I, I. You know what? I felt like it was going to be <laughs> good. I thought, I thought it was going to be a good weekend for me. I did okay. I mean, I did okay. uh yeah. like, I, I feel like most I'm four of, and
1: one, and we got a we got another game tonight to get to.
0: Yeah. Well, I, you know, uh I, everybody, I think, was a little shook over the Cardinals and uh, the way that went down against Carolina. I think mm-hmm. everybody missed on that one, so I don't feel bad about that. Other than that, it was you know it was pretty good. I just
1: I didn't pick it because there's some stuff I've seen from the Cardinals that hasn't made me feel good. So
0: well, uh, you know what? There's some stuff uh, that I saw from my beloved Raiders on. You know what? The great thing about <laughs> uh, not having the is— You know we... what
1: I saw from my Bears? It's nothing. Literally the most boring game I've ever watched. I want I wanted to find the meme where it's just someone poking a blob with a stick that says do something. That's how I felt <laughs> the entire game. I'm like do anything.
0: Yeah, for the second straight week, I watched my team lose, and there was a spot in the fourth quarter for the second straight week where I was like, "Man, we've got a real shot of coming back here." It's this is not going to be friendly to my liver. Like, it, it, there was the amount of shots that were flowing by the end. Like, I got myself really toasty drunk, so yeah, not proud of it. You know, it's to. been a rough Monday because of the Raiders on Sunday. So <laughs> that's the well, good news. We don't have to. We don't even have to acknowledge it.
1: Well, just in case we are not on tomorrow, uh, hopefully we'll be back again for some more pods this week, if not shows. We also have a, um, an interview coming up right now with Matt Hart uh, and his book, When It All Costs. Interesting, a pretty explosive book, actually. And for people who are big fans of Nike as, as a company and as a brand, um, some interesting stuff has come out over the last few years that I think is obviously worth them addressing and improving upon. Uh, they're, they're a pretty beloved brand here, but uh, between uh, maternity pay And um, abusive coaches in their Nike Oregon Project running program, and now uh, the latest with the doping scandal that ended that program at the end of last year. Uh, Lots to talk to him about, so it should be interesting. Joining us now is Matt Hart, a freelance journalist and author uh, and the writer of When It All Costs, explosive behind-the-scenes look that reveals the unsettling details of Nike's secret running program, the Nike Oregon Project. You guys have likely heard about this in a variety of different stories over the last couple of years, but this book now seeks to tell the full story. Uh, Matt, thanks so much for the time. I, I'm curious how you decided to report on this and eventually turn it into a full book.
2: Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. First of all, um, it was kind of a, a stepwise progress, a progression story. Really. I, I started reporting on it for the New York times in uh, May, uh, maybe February, late February of 2017. And, uh, the further down the hole I got and the more people I talked to about what exactly had happened on the team, uh, the more I realized, uh, you know, I was uncovering a book and there was a full, you know, kind of unbelievable narrative here that needed to be told.
0: How does that work for you then when you're starting a story and you realize it's about to turn into a book, how does it change your process?
2: Um, you know, working as a freelance journalist under deadline is totally different than what I ended up doing for the book. Um, I got a bit of a breather. I mean, you know, the process is just basically trying to talk to everyone involved uh, and staying on top of every uh, possible story as it was breaking around me, which happened, you know, during the reporting of this book, more and more information was coming out uh, things that I'd already found out as well as um, you know, some new information, of course, the Mary Kane allegations, but as far as process goes, um it's a lot of the same but you know you just, i'm just looking at it differently as far as building a bigger narrative um you know you can do a lot more regression into the history of nike and nike's story and you can tell a bit more of the history of the sport of running in general uh, and where all the characters co- came from so it's it's just a um, you know more thorough and of course you have uh, quite a few more words to tell the story but then the problem is figuring out what uh you know, necessary and cutting out what's not to the overall narrative, but yeah. similar it, process, just tough part. more <laughs> exhaustive. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah um, right.
1: There were a number of stories kind of floating around on uh, a variety of places uh, about Nike failing to continue paying athletes who got pregnant. Uh, the Mary Kane story you mm-hmm. mentioned of a toxic culture of, of eating disorders and abusive behavior from coaching. Then it became about, um, uh, You know, uh, Alberto Salazar, this legendary running coach and accusations of um, doping that he was administering to his athletes. Uh, Then a couple Mm -hmm. whistleblowers of notable name come out and then it becomes something that has now shut down this whole Nike Oregon project program. I'm curious for those who haven't Mm -hmm. dived deep into this. What's the impetus for Nike to have its own running program with coaches as opposed to having the best athletes in the world be Nike athletes who train with their own people separately from the company.
2: Yeah, I think it's um, just having direct control over the process that's probably uh, driven them to do this. As, as I kind of lay out in the book, this is their second attempt at having um, a homegrown team. So at the end, of, in, in the late 70s, um, after failing to really impress anyone at the 1976 Olympics, Nike decided to start its own running team, um, and that was called Athletics West, and they were in Eugene at the time, um, early days of Nike. But they were built; they were eventually built uh, a facility for the runners, uh, and that that program also kind of devolved into um, rumors and accusations and a lot of unhappy people. And then this, uh, the modern day program, the Nike, which would become the Nike Oregon Project, it wasn't named that right out the gate. You know, that was really, um, that happened in 2001. Alberto Salazar, who had been a legendary uh, Nike runner, you know, one, America's best marathon runner for a few years, uh, he was a Nike employee in the marketing department and he had um, sat down to watch the Boston Marathon in the Boston Cafe on the Nike campus. And he happened mm-hmm. to be sitting with Tom Clark, who was a, a, a president at the time. And they just sort of realized the American athletes were not competitive. You know, they were, um, there was no American athletes in the top five. And as Nike athletes, they were both runners. Uh, Tom Clark, I think, has run more than 30 marathons himself. Uh, so the two men just were kind of disgusted by um, how poorly uh, they, the American athletes had done. And so they hatched a plan there to, you know, with Alberto at the helm to coach the team that they would try to bring, you know, some glory back to um, American distance running. And so that was the impetus for the Oregon Project, using, you know, technology and Nike's largesse, you know, the the piggy bank and Alberto's expertise.
0: So then where to go wrong, Matt? I mean, for all the, the deception and drug use and everything else that you've uncovered, I mean, where do you put the blame for that?
2: Yeah, that's a good question. So, I mean, initially it it takes a little unpacking, but I'll try to be uh, brief. It's You know, the team for the first 10 years was an abject failure. You know, the athletes were not performing uh, on the international stage and they were not winning Olympics. And so I think, you know, the pressure just started to ratchet up over time. You know, Alberto had what some of uh, my sources said was more than a million-dollar leash. You know, he had a budget, and that's not including the athlete's salaries to uh, really pour money into the program and they weren't getting uh, the results that they wanted to. And so I'm, you know, with, with what I've learned about the corporate culture at Nike, you know, there was some hand wringing about this and, and Alberto was under the gun, I think to, you know, really produce uh, and really, you know, have some gold medal winners and, or uh, world champions. And so I think that's where, you know, I mean, it's hard to say Alberto has had his, um, he has had an interest in uh, obscure technologies and supplements since his own running career. And so, at some point uh, in his own running career, he had used uh, various uh, prescription drugs to bring himself back from what was likely a physiological hole that he had overtrained himself into. And so, you know, he's training athletes at this elite level, at this top level. And of course, you know, some athletes physiologically, genetically can handle the load and some can't. And so, some you know, their testosterone drops or, you know, their performances drop, their hormones become out of whack. And so what it looks like when I look at the story from the 10,000-foot view is that at some point he decided to start having the doctors help him get the athletes back on track, training harder, faster, sleeping less. And so that's when the team decided to start dabbling in, you know, what performance-enhancing drugs that that we can be prescribed would help us run faster. And he really dove headfirst into that, it seems like. And so, yeah, at some point, I just feel like maybe the pressure was, was ratcheted up on him. And, um, you know, he sort of waded into these gray areas because a lot of these are gray areas. You know, they're not outright uh, illegal. Some of the substances a doctor would prescribe you for an actual medical condition, you know, you you can rightfully use in sport because it's fixing, you know, something that's wrong with you that's uh, diagnosable. But what what the team started to do was, Figure out ways to fail the test, so they could get prescribed asthma medication, or they'd use a doctor who didn't care that you tested uh, in the right, in the correct range for TSH, thyroid stimulating hormone, and so he would prescribe the drug even though you were in the normal range, uh, because the drug, uh, Alberto thought, you know, would ratchet up your, would help increase your testosterone, and it was also obvious that uh, taking thyroid, various thyroid hormones would, uh, increase your metabolism. So it's easier for the athletes to get to weight, to get really thin so they could run faster. And so, yeah, that's a long winded way to answer your question, but I think, uh, <laughs> no, just over time, you know, there revels, are huge right? expectations the pressure, on this team. Yeah. yeah. The,
1: the money, the pressure, the name, everything else, when it all costs, yeah. it, it comes out tomorrow. It's behind the scenes on the Oregon project. Obviously, Matt, Nike is a massive company. It's an international global company that has any number of different, um, you know, departments, sports, intentions, everything else, right? So this Oregon Mm -hmm. project and the running side is just a piece of it. I'm curious because in Mm -hmm. one of the reviews I read of the book of Outside Magazine, um, it it felt like there was an an effort to tie in all of Nike's uh, previous criticisms or failings on other and other parts of the company to this specific thing and and the writer wrote Hart occasionally overstates the extent to which a win-at-all-cost mentality reflects a deep-seated malevolence as opposed to a brand image that cares more about having the best athletes wear their product than being a beacon for clean sport what's sort of your response to that and do you see how someone might might see that in the
2: book yeah yeah i mean uh i think you know, that criticism is is worth considering uh, to me. Um, you know, when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail, they say. Right, right, but right. the further I started to research the story, you know, so many things popped out to me. And, you know, I, I didn't actually start writing the the book with the intent to to connect those dots at all. It was just, you know, the more people I spoke to that were on campus or had been professional athletes with Nike, the more that they presented themselves. And I and, and they, there were clear lines between this. It, you know, Nike, a, a book in the 90s came out about Nike that they were very unhappy with um, called Swoosh, the unauthorized story of Nike and the men who played there. And, and you know, that book detailed a lot of these, um, it, it, I think they called them the early Nike days. Nike was considered the Saturday Night Live of the shoe business. And there were reports of them, you know, storming into restaurants and bars, and like everyone fleeing because they were uh, a little bit out of control and a little bit drunk and very arrogant. And I just saw a lot of the similar, a lot of similarities in some of the stories I was hearing modern day. You know, stories about Trevor Edwards, who's since been let go uh, at the 2016 Olympics, and and just things that kind of strained credulity. I, I had a history uh, at a college. I worked at a Microsoft, so a major corporation, for seven years, and I just couldn't believe the things that I was hearing uh, about what was going on, you know, on the corporate dime at Nike. Um, and so I was just awestruck by it. And it, it seems to, um, I think explaining those, that scenario and and what the the upper uh, corporate echelon is at Nike. I mean, that is what trickles down to the employees, uh, and the coaches, you know, that they're led from above the shadow of Phil Knight and, and, and the uh, the upper executives. And so once I uncovered that a lot of those guys were still there acting in a similar way to the way they had been in the early days, I, I just thought it was totally and completely relevant uh, to the story and how a guy like Alberto can get away with for so long uh, that kind of behavior on the Nike campus.
0: Matt, have you gotten any response from Nike to your book?
2: I have not. No, not yet. Uh,
1: that's Probably to come. And it'll be interesting <laughs> to see what the response yes, we'll will be. See. I mean, it, it is such a massive, um, successful company. And obviously, there's any number of ways for companies like that to lose their way or for parts of the company to be to be toxic and rotten, which right. we've heard from a number of athletes that are really well-respected. Uh, thanks for coming on to talk about it. Um, yeah. I have to admit, it, it, during the current sports apocalypse, I haven't made it through the whole way. There's 8,000 sports <laughs> happening at once. But I'm finding it to be a right. very interesting read so far. So uh, appreciate you coming on. Oh,
2: great. Well, thanks so much for having me. I appreciate it.
0: All right, like Sarah said, Sarah, not sure if we have another show, but one thing I know is that we'll find <laughs> a way to get together. Well, I mean, this week. <laughs> ESPN Radio is getting you all the hits. We're like Jack FM at this point. You get a little baseball, you get a little That's bit right. of football, you get a little basketball. It's all going to be there. But uh in, in case we don't in case we don't do anything For the next day or two, this is the great reminder for everybody, check out the podcast, because even when we're not on air, this is our chance to still hang out with everybody. And, Sarah, by the time we do talk, we'll both have healed from what our favorite teams did to us on Sunday. I hope so. Eh, We'll see. Wishful (laughs) thinking. Thanks for listening, guys. Be sure to tell your friends, family, enemies, and everybody to subscribe to the Spain and Fitz podcast. (laughs)